0: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am editor-in-chief of Quillette. Quillette is where Free Thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kaye. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. These young people are playing Dungeons and Dragons. It's an enormously complicated game in which each player chooses an imaginary character he'll assume. There are dwarfs, knights and thieves, gods and devils, magic and spells. There are those who are fearful that the game in the hands of
1: vulnerable kids could do harm. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. And what you just heard is an excerpt from the introduction to a 1985 60-minute special on the role-playing tabletop game Dungeons & Dragons, or as it's known, D&D. I was a teenager at the time that episode aired, a stereotypically nerdy D&D player, and I watched the game soar in popularity among my friends, even as some conservative and Christian groups fretted about whether it promoted occultism, social withdrawal, and even suicide. Those are the claims, in fact, that 60 Minutes host, Ed Bradley, was set to talk about in the clip we just heard. Well, fast forward 37 years, and people are still playing D&D. And there's still social panic surrounding the game. But, maybe to no one's surprise, that social panic isn't coming from conservatives these days, but from progressives. Some of whom worry that D&D promotes racism through the negative depiction of evil creatures, such as orcs and ghouls, who some impressionable players might link to real-life people of color. Fiction writer N.K. Jemisin, for instance, recently was quoted in Wired Magazine to the effect that, quote, "...Orcs are human beings who can be slaughtered without conscience or apology." End quote. That article, by the way, appeared under the headline, D&D must grapple with the racism in fantasy, and getting rid of it will take a lot of work. But is this really a problem? According to Christopher J. Ferguson, an American psychologist who serves as a professor and co-chair of psychology at Stetson University in Florida, the answer is no. In a new paper published in Current Psychology called, Are Orcs Racist? Dungeons and Dragons, Ethnocentrism, Anxiety, and the Depiction of Evil Monsters, he cast doubt on the idea that imaginary battles with orcs will make you racist in real life. But he also shows why some socially conscious players may come to believe otherwise. Because while only about 10% of his survey respondents said they thought the idea of evil orcs was offensive, that number jumped to more than a third when he asked them if orcs were racist, almost as if the very act of mentioning a possible link to racism causes people to imagine that such a link really exists. It's a lesson that extends well beyond gaming, I'd say. I spoke to Professor Ferguson last week about D&D, board game culture in general, and the sticky business of mixing politics and gaming in hyper-progressive spaces. So I'm just going to start out with this quote from your piece. Studies differ with regard to whether D&D players have entirely normal psychological profiles. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's a a lot going on there. I
0: think, can you describe what you mean by that, by that <laughs> yeah absolutely so there were always these uh, cliches and, and i should say i should start off by saying i'm a duns and dragons player myself uh so any stereotyping i'm aiming at myself as much as anybody uh but there, there were these stereotypes of course of you know going back to the 80s and 90s of Dungeons and dragons players as being these kind of you know geeks and nerds socially isolated mostly male largely introverted Possibly with inept, you know, social skills, largely the same stereotype as with video gamers <laughs> to a large degree. Um, and so there were these studies kind of dating back to that time period, mostly sort of looking at the, the psychological profiles of Dungeons and Dragons players and trying to figure out, you know, where, where, I mean, I kind of put it bluntly, you know, we're these people as weird as we think or, or you know, is, 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 is that kind of a stereotype? And, uh, and the results were kind of a mixture, you know, so there were, you know, so there was some evidence to suggest that there were some personality differences, kind of fitting the stereotype of uh, d and players, at least as being more introverted, you know, and uh, that sort of thing compared to, uh, you know, the general population, if you will. Uh, and there are other studies suggesting that the stereotypes were largely overblown, and that you had a wide range of people who played Dungeons and Dragons, and and uh, they weren't necessarily all that different from the regular folks you'd you'd meet on the street. But uh, but I remember you know being a teenager playing Dungeons and Dragons. It definitely was not a, like a selling point for the girls. You know I will say that. Fortunately, I was lucky enough to eventually meet a woman who was immune to that. <laughs> so yeah, although I think I probably waited to like at least the third date to uh, uh, unleash the the reality of my Dungeons and Dragons playing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a social signifier. It
1: signified that you were not one who was familiar with a woman's touch. Let's <laughs> say. Yeah, you, you quote a lot of old studies on the social and psychological profiles of D and D players, and you acknowledge that these are old studies. I can attest that these studies are probably really outdated because if you go to a gaming convention these days and mm-hmm. i mean i haven't been to a big gaming convention since the pandemic started but if you go to the role-playing area which it's not just DD, it's it's other so-called role-playing games where you adopt the character it could be sci-fi it could be sword yeah. and sorcery there are tons of women now mm-hmm. and if you went to the equivalent of these 20 or 30 years ago there just weren't and it's also like a very progressive yeah. culture LGBT participation, there's hipsters and there's teenagers and there's jocks and, you know, what you would kind of call the sort of gender fluid crowd. Yeah, uh,
0: absolutely. I mean, so I, I've seen a lot of the same things with the video game research as well. I mean, so you do have this kind of historical trend where, you know, both of these spaces, as you mentioned, were historically male, not successful males <laughs> necessarily, but they, they did have this kind of like masculinity, uh, you know, element to it. And uh, gradually, you know, particularly in the 2000s and 2010s, you see the shift to an increasingly expansive uh, female audience or non-binary or, or uh, as you said, gender fluid or whatever. The appeal sort of broadened out, you know, quite a bit. And that's really been the last decade or so uh, that a lot of that has occurred. I mean, most of these products, when they originally were made, were marketed largely to, to, to boys. I mean, a lot of these things were basically sold as toys you know back in the 80s and such and so when they kind of decided where in the toy store did you put it they put it in the boys section so you really kind of had it marketed towards one gender more so than the, than the other um, you know and even in the 90s you would find some women that were playing these games but they were largely in the in the minority but now you know you're seeing a lot of these you call them kind of geek spaces whether it's role-playing games or comic books or uh, video games or other things that are really expanding out. And there are a lot more products that are being marketed specifically towards, towards women or towards both men and women, uh, or individuals that not necessarily identifying either as men or women. So you are seeing a lot of expansiveness, you know, a lot of cosplay. And a lot of it is marketed now. So if you look at the language, you know, for instance, of the programs for something like Gen Con, they include a lot of language that is progressively coded, you know, essentially. So they really view their audience today as this kind of younger, mostly progressive audience. And they're marketing to to that crowd to a large degree.
1: So when I was playing games like Quake and Doom, half-life sort of very male first-person shooter games just for those who aren't gamers it's sort of like a 3d environment the world is usually quite bleak post-apocalyptic and now i watch my teenage daughters play Fortnite. the colors are brighter the narratives are mm-hmm. deeper there's much more focus on aesthetics on characters sometimes the characters don't fight each other they'll like kind of hang around it becomes almost like a set of social experience I'm wondering if the same is true in Dungeons & Dragons, where it's not quite clear which way the causative arrow is going. On one hand, you create games that appeal more to a diverse audience, but then those people, because of their inclusion, they create all these amazing aesthetic and narrative influences in the game, which just make better games. Like, Fortnite is just a better game than a lot of these bleak, post-apocalyptic shooters I used to play. That must be very hard to model uh, as an academic.
0: It can can be very tricky, because there's also, like, you know, really considerable difference sometimes between what we might think of as like the forward facing public of a role playing community or a gaming community and the actual demographics of the people who are are, are playing. And so, and there oftentimes tends to be a lot of flattening of that, you know, so we see talk about like gender, for instance, in games, whether it's role playing or video games, you tend to see a lot of even the companies will emphasize this idea that, we're seeing a lot more gender diversity in gaming communities, which is true. It's actually you know, uh, you know, factually correct. Um, but it also sometimes sort of flattens a lot of the nuances in that. So if you look at like video games, for instance, you know, it certainly is true that you have almost equal gender representation among individuals who are playing games at this point. But what games people are playing, you still see a lot of gender differences. So if you're looking at the sort of first person shooter action games, Call of
1: Duty is still your typical macho male. Yeah, guy. the Call
0: of Duty. Yeah, <laughs> Very male audience for the most part. There are some women who love to play those games, you know, so certainly not trying to you know, exclude those people. But, uh, but it is still a largely male audience where if you look at kind of the app games you know the Farmvilles and animal crossings and angry birds of the world a lot of women tend to gravitate or girls tend to gravitate towards a lot of them uh and then you do find some of the fortnights that just have more of a broad appeal for both boys and girls and men and women um so you do see f- some games that sort of buck that trend to some extent if you're kind of looking at like role-playing spaces yeah you, you see kind of the same thing so you, you know you do if you go to the cons like Gen Con, you'll see a lot of diversity and a lot of gender diversity in those spaces. But if you then recruit for, say, a typical Dungeons and Dragons game, you'll get a lot of guys. So it is still largely men. And I think this relates to a lot of the debates that also go on, you know, about sort of like the content of Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder or games like that is you have this sort of public facing group that are very vocal in both positive and negative ways. And that may not be the base, if you will, of players who are actually going to be the long term people who are going to buy your product. So let's talk a little bit about
1: Dungeons and Dragons in particular, because for those who haven't played it, it's a sword and sorcery theme. You typically have heroes who are essentially the alter egos, sometimes as elaborate like Game of Thrones subplots and stuff like that. Because it has a typical kind of good versus evil narrative in most respects, mm-hmm. every Luke Skywalker needs a Darth Vader, and one of the, the most common evil characters is this so-called orc. Mm-hmm. At least when the game started out, was this kind of mindless killing machine. When I started playing, there was this thing called the Monster Manual, which was this catalogue of all these uh, monsters. I was interested to see that orcs now have something of an inner life. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, from official Dungeons & Dragons material. Mm-hmm. Most orcs have been indoctrinated into a life of destruction and slaughter, but unlike creatures who are by their very nature evil such as gnolls, it's possible that an orc, if raised outside its culture, could develop a limited capacity for empathy, love, and compassion. No matter how domesticated an orc might seem, its bloodlust flows just below the surface. With its instinctive love of battle and its desire to prove its strength, an orc trying to live within the confines of civilization is faced with a difficult task. Now, when I read this, I actually was kind of troubled by this, because when you're playing a game and you're killing an evil creature, you you don't want to think, if only this creature were showed love, (laughs) we could even be friends. Like, no, that's the opposite, which is is one of the reasons why why zombie narratives are so popular, because (laughs) there's all these video games about mowing down zombies. Like, zombies, by definition, have no inner life. They're just like this Mm -hmm. soul-dead killing machine. When did this kind Mm -hmm. of happen, that orcs were slightly humanized?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think how you describe it is exactly correct. Uh, You know, initially when the game was developed, it was developed around this idea of good versus evil narratives, which... Are you know historically incredibly popular? I mean, these are you know historically you can see these go back all the way to the uh, epic of Gilgamesh. You know, this- Dungeons <laughs> and
1: Dragons took it a step further by formalizing a system of your char- your character's alignment. Yeah, was either I mean, it was a complicated. It was like chaotic, good, and lawful, evil. And, but it's, but essentially, when you created a character, you would have, <laughs> you would have to designate it yeah. as, as literally as good or as evil.
0: Yeah, exactly. You would kind of have this sort of prefabbed uh, idea of your sort of moral virtue, you know, uh, th- your worldview as a character. You know, and the idea is, of course, that uh, theoretically most people would play good characters. But then, of course, other people wanted to play antiheroes. So they would you know, <laughs> start to play heroes that were less good. Uh, and that's all fine. You know, that's all part of the flexibility uh, of the game. Uh, but there still was, you know, most of the narrative of the game, you know, was this sense of, you know, the simplistic version of it was basically you're playing as good guys, and you're trying to undo the evils of the bad guys. So if you're going to have that kind of system, then you need bad guys. Uh, and so they created, you know, hordes of these different monster, you know, and I'm going to put in air quotes, you know, races, and you know, that's probably part of the the loaded term there is is calling them races, but you know, these monster critters, like orcs and gnolls and of course dragons and vampires and zombies and all that kind of stuff that you would have to fight. Um, and kill, you know, in order to undo whatever nefarious plot they were, uh, you know, involved in. So yeah, for, for the large part, in the early versions of the game, they were pop-ups, you know, they were like 80s, you know, when you were shooting the Soviets, you know, you didn't really think about them as being, you know, having, inter- they were just were bad communists. And, and of course, Sylvester Stallone would kill them. But, you know, so it had that same kind of sort of pop-up kind of value. And I think in large part, I mean, I think you know, we see narratives change again, probably in the early you know, maybe by even by the late nineteen nineties and early two thousands, where people wanted more anti-heroes, they wanted more complex stories, they wanted their bad guys to have more nuanced backgrounds. And you can even see this in like the Marvel, you know, movies that have come out, you know, fairly recently. The graphic novels you saw, Dark Knight
1: with Batman or or or, or Watchmen. Yeah,
0: yeah. And and even I mean, of course, most recently the Joker movie is a great example of that, where yeah. essentially there's a person who's doing evil things, but you can almost I guess you can kind of understand why. I mean, you know, you can sort of... <laughs> and they got yeah. into trouble with that. And ironically, there's a big moral panic about that movie, the idea that we're going to be shooters everywhere, which, of course, never materialized. You know, that's Well, actually,
1: well, let's get into that, because when I was younger, the moral panic around Dungeons & Dragons was based on conservatives. To some extent, it was it was traditional Christian conservatives who didn't like what they saw as a kind of pagan narrative. But there were also people who thought that maybe folks like you and me would just kind of lose control of reality and don fur and loincloth and go around slaying people with swords and stuff like (laughs) that. But now, the people who are worried that orcs this is going to engender racism, they're not conservatives, they're, they're progressives, right?
0: Yeah, and I do want to say nobody wants to see me in a fur and a loincloth. That's actually a perfectly appropriate moral panic, you know, that's, well, <laughs> uh, yeah, but there was this historical, you know, we, we, the term we tend to use is moral panic, you know, uh, back in the late 80s and early 90s in particular yeah that, that had its roots in christian conservatism but it also became pretty mainstream bipartisan so you would see psychologists and psychiatrists participate in it as well and of course there was a somewhat infam- infamous 60 minutes special about you know the, the sort of linking D D to suicide and other kinds of negative outcomes it, was donahue involved i feel like donahue was always involved. I, no I, I, I he probably was <laughs> i'm sure <there> was, yeah. <laughs> i don't i don't remember if there was a donahue special we're dating ourselves yeah, we're yeah. dating ourselves yeah. <laughs> i remember watching donahue in afternoons but yeah uh i don't I don't remember Adon. I'm sure though that uh, there probably was one uh, that he had. I know he had some video game stuff going on for a while, but of course, eventually it died out. But what happened is the, the uh, Dungeons and Dragons system actually removed Demons and Devils, which were an- another of the bad guys in there. Uh, so they actually removed Demons and Devils from the game. Uh, and they kind of put them back in and I think they called them like Batazoo and Tanari, but they sort of removed all the references to hell and and demonness and devilness and that kind of stuff. I remember
1: Demogorgon was the most powerful villain in the original yeah. Dungeons
0: and Dragons universe. Is Demogorgon still around? He's still around. Yeah, no, they brought them back. Yeah. They So, okay. yeah, they actually uh, I think it was either at the end of the second edition or by the certainly by the third edition. Everybody got kind of it was ridiculous. Everybody got tired of the moral panic and nobody really thought of, you know, that little kids were getting turned into Satan worshipers because of it. So they brought the the official devils and demons back to and, our uh, knowledge. In the third edition. Yeah, <laughs> to the best that we know, I guess you can, you know, cast a side eye at me and decide, you know, but uh, uh, but yeah, so now we're seeing kind of a, in some ways a similar a concern although as you said this time it's mostly coming from the progressive left and now either the concern is that these monster races particularly orcs uh, although there's also a lot of talk about drow who are these kind of like evil dark-skinned elf race in the game these sort of monster races and again maybe calling them races was a bad choice of word anyway uh, for the DD system but uh, that these monster critters Uh, are in some way either meant to represent or unintentionally represent real life human races of one sort or another, or that perhaps regardless that the race essentialism, you know, so that if you are an orc, you are evil, basically by definition, that that kind of race essentialism, if you're playing that in the game and you're exposed to that in the game, then you'll sort of take that message into real life. And assume that, well, if orcs are evil by nature in the game, then people of group X in real life also must be defined by their sort of whatever, their genetic inheritance as a race or, you know, all this kind of race essentialism that's a problem in in real life. So this sort of this attribution that players of D&D perhaps will become more racist in real life as a consequence of sort of dealing with inherently evil orcs or other sorts of situations. You know, and then people sort of interpret like how orcs look and if they were meant to represent, um, you know, Africans or Asians, there seems to be some disagreement about exactly who the orcs are meant to represent. But, you know, so people trying to interpret, you know, even was like Tolkien when he wrote Lord of the Rings, was he's really trying to sort of like depict orcs as being similar to like the Mongols or like Africans or, or something of that sort. So what we're dealing with here, though, is a little bit of an existential question that goes
1: beyond gaming, per se, where one artificial device we use to create drama in movies and genre literature, is the idea that there are purely evil creatures that have no inner life. You know, no one wants to hear about the inner life of Jabba the Hutt. Uh, you know, Jabba the Hutt is seen as a manifestation of, of pure greed, and to the extent that we're not allowed to portray any kind of race of characters, fictional of course, as, as, as purely evil... You're taking away one of the really, I would say, essential ingredients to the creation of adventure or genre literature. Is that point ever addressed explicitly by people who are critics of the whole orc thing?
0: I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I think a lot of this debate, to be frank, kind of takes place in Twitter. Oh, awesome! Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I don't know that 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 a lot, there's a lot of coherence necessarily. You know, to to maybe either side of, of uh, you know the debate about a lot of these things, as you might imagine, given that context. And and of course, a lot of it takes place in games journalism spaces and and that sort of stuff too. And maybe we can talk about you know some of the limitations of that. But but I don't know that there's like a coherent worldview that necessarily is is sort of the primary driver behind a lot of these concerns, or even perhaps criticisms of those concerns necessarily. I mean, I think a lot of it is kind of coming down to, you know, to use sort of the the cliches coming down to gatekeeping and, and sort of like two groups that really want the game to look like how they want it to look. And are, you know, being very aggressive with each other, uh, rather than finding some way of compromising about how that could all, you know, work out. I mean, you know, of course, my curiosity is more about sort of like the practical, you know, ramifications of some of this stuff in terms of like, is it, is it really true that playing d and leads to racism in real life? To no one's surprise, especially mine, you find that playing Dungeons and Dragons doesn't make you
1: racist. It's not like you say, "Oh, I killed an orc." Feels great. Maybe I'll just go out and be racist to my coworkers. I, I guess this is hard <laughs> to study because the kind of person who's drawn to Dungeons yeah. and Dragons—I don't want to be a snob here—but it's probably a person who's like maybe more educated because they D&D there's yeah. like lots of books you have to read. You know, it, it appeals to a college crowd and tends to be sort of very progressive. My sense would be that playing D&D provided you're not doing it in like an insular group, would make you more open-minded and progressive. I I can tell you that, you know, sometimes people who listen to my podcast know that I'm kind of a critic of extreme gender ideology, but Mm. I can tell you, when I go to gaming conventions, I will wear pronoun pins because if I'm sitting next to some guy who's dressed as a smurf, which does happen sometimes, you don't necessarily know what that person's Mm -hmm. sex or gender is, and there's a lot of cosplay, as you say. There's a lot of people enmeshed in these fantasy yeah. universes. And to my mind, these are places where I'm exposed to a very diverse crowd. Like, did you find that playing these games makes people more progressive in their attitudes regarding race? Uh,
0: we, we did not. We, we actually found it was pretty neutral. It was, uh, you know, basically no impact of playing D&D on, you know, people's sort of real life racist attitudes. And that's fairly consistent with what we find in media effects in general, that, you know, just sort of exposure to whether it's television, books, video games. You know, for the most part, in this case Dungeons and Dragons, you know, we don't really see that exposure to fictional worlds, you know, cause people to adopt, you know, new attitudes or behaviors, whether that's increased aggression or increased body dissatisfaction and increased racism in this case, you know, people tend to overestimate. The degree to which you know reading something or watching something or playing something is going to sort of fundamentally change a person's worldview. Uh, I make the joke that you know it really kind of shows we're all actually really bad learners. But in some ways, that's comforting. You know, so we're actually fairly resilient to this idea that being exposed to something, even if it is noxious, and of course that's sort of a subjective opinion, that that you know being exposed to this noxious thing is going to make us a worse person. That that generally isn't what we see. The the, the upshot of that, however, is it also Means that it doesn't make us a better person either. <laughs> you know, what I mean? so, uh, that's a real disappointment for a lot of people because you know there's a whole academic field that's dedicated to designing video games and other products like books and that kind of stuff that are designed to uh, help people adopt moral values, empathy, you know, that kind of stuff, and and those don't work either.
1: So it's been about two years since the COVID pandemic began. When it started, a lot of us found it unusual to replace in-person services like therapy with connections we made over the phone or the internet. But two years later, no one finds that unusual anymore. It's part of our day-to-day life. Which brings me to one of our commercial supporters, BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people everywhere become happier and more productive. At betterhelp.com, that's H-E-L-P, you can connect with a professional licensed therapist in a safe, private, online environment according to your own schedule using either secure video, phone, online chat, or text. Whatever you share is, of course, strictly confidential. And while BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, new clients can start communicating with their counselor in less than 24 hours. BetterHelp's network contains thousands of licensed therapists, and you can switch therapists to make sure you get the right fit. Licensed counselors include specialists in trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. And as people who've used the service know, there's actually a few advantages associated with online therapy services. There's no awkward waiting room. And you can message your BetterHelp counselor at any time. And it's just more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Join the many others who are taking charge of their mental health by visiting betterhelp.com. Quillette listeners get 10% off their first month service with the discount code QUILLETTE with two L's and two T's and an E at the end. Just go to betterhelp.com .com/quillette. And now back to our podcast. There was one statistical thing that jumped out here. It was more related to your methodology than it was to the actual substance of what you had intended to study. And I'm reading here from the abstract, not from the actual content of the study. Only 10.2% found a depiction of Orc monsters as inherently evil to be offensive. However, When later asked the blunter question of whether the same depiction was racist, the number jumped to 34%, with women particularly inclined to endorse this position. That That was was a surprise.
0: (laughs) I definitely didn't see that coming. I wish I could say I was was brilliant. I knew this would happen. I, I had no idea so and it was also interesting too it wasn't just women but it was also more aggressive people were more likely to find orcs as racist which actually was a surprise because we tend to associate a you know sort of what we call trade aggression with racism you know people that are more aggressive tend to hold more stereotype views of others and in this case they actually were more inclined to endorse the racism item than were people who were less aggressive so first off these numbers don't on the surface make a whole lot of sense because what what the research we have does clarify is that most people who find something to be racist also find it to be offensive. You know, so there's not this like massive group of people who are just love racist stuff, you know, who just think racist stuff is funny and and, and wonderful. Most people are appalled by racist material. You know, there are some exceptions, of course, but devaluing of racist jokes or something like that is pretty marketed, in the, you know, in the last few decades. So we can't say that of this 30%, it's not likely that 20% of them enjoyed the racism if you will <laughs> of, of the of the orcs uh and weren't offended by it what seems more likely to happen and in fairness you know of course i'm speculating you know uh, beyond the the data I have and sort of interpreting the data with what I think is likely to to explain it is that with the more subtle question if you ask people are you offended by the description of works which by the way was the description that you had read um, just a little bit earlier most people yeah they don't really care you know it didn't matter if they were players it didn't matter if they were not players it didn't matter if they were uh, people of color it didn't matter if they were white so there weren't any real differences you know most people just didn't find that depiction of work to be particularly upsetting. I think what my guess, you know, is what's happening is when you then come back, you know, and I did have them do a bunch of other things, you know, they that there were some distractor things for them to do, so it was not too obvious what the hypothesis of the study was, but is that if you come back and you ask them, well, was this thing racist? You, you probably get a group of people who assume, well, it must be, because why else would you ask, you know? Um, and and <laughs> that, that at that point... <laughs> I think we just leveled up,
1: as it were, in our understanding <laughs> yeah. of modern culture.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think what's happening. My and again, just, you know, I'll, I'll be fully upfront and say I'm speculating. You know, what I, my explanation for the aggression thing too there is is I think that um, the sort of accusation of racism has taken on itself sort of an aggressive edge. In other words, you can shut people down, you know, or get credit, uh, credibility yourself at other people's expense by lobbying the sort of racist accusation of people. So you may see a situation. I think that fits, again, with th- thinking of these, like, debates that are going on on Twitter. So a lot of them are incredibly aggressive, you know, um, and I just watched one back and forth where two people on either side of this debate were arguing over who were the new gatekeepers you know so we kind of like think of this as an argument about inclusivity but at least in this you know this is a sample size of one it was on twitter so we can't generalize too much from it but at least in terms of this debate uh yeah it was gatekeeping on both sides It wasn't no inclusivity the people were not motivated by being inclusive they really were like my my group gets to decide what this game looks like now. And I think that's really like the, the heart of a lot of these debates, you know, and of course this is mirrored throughout society and a lot of other different areas at the same time. It's really a lot of the language is pro-social. A lot of language is sort of couched in a language of helping disadvantaged groups and that sort of stuff. But I think for a lot of people, and I don't mean to imply a bad faith across, you know, uh, everybody's involved in this sort of situation, but there's probably at least some incentive here about power and influence and who gets to sort of dictate, you know, the narrative of, you know, popular culture, either in role-playing games or more broadly. Because you'll see these arguments saying, well, if you don't like it, you can kind of play your own game how you want and sort of ignore the new rules, which is true. It's absolutely fair. Uh, But of course, that's an argument that cuts both ways. You could also make the same argument for leaving the game the way it was, you know, um, and just change your game, you know, to be more progressive.
1: We're talking about debates about canonical texts, People take it really seriously, because for some people, it defines their identity. And and let me segue from that. There have been a lot of efforts in these gaming subcultures where, like, if you are Identity X, your character is Identity X. And I totally get that. Um, If you have a strong bond with your character, people might remember playing, it's been out for, for many years now, the Nintendo Wii. One of the, the big things about the Nintendo Wii is you would have the Mii, which is the M-I-I, which was your avatar. And I remember when we brought that Nintendo home, my, my girls spent like hours getting their Mii's to, to like kind of look like them as much as possible. I don't even <laughs> think they played the game. They just like, spent the whole time doing it. But at a certain point when you're dealing with role playing, at least for me, it's an escape from life. If your character kind of like looks like you and yeah. talks like you and is political like you at what point does it stop being a diversion from from real life and it starts being kind of like an extension of life? Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I think that's, you know, one of the uh, criticisms that has emerged with some of the Dungeons & Dragons products. And I think particularly the uh, Candlekeep Mysteries that came out, I think over the summer. Can you tell us a little bit about the Candlekeep Yeah, mysteries? so it was basically an adventure path that came out. It was produced by Wizards of the Coast, which is the makers of Dungeons and Dragons. And it came out over the summer. You know, as far as I know it, I think it probably did reasonably well. DD has a pretty built-in audience and most of the products are going to be bestsellers. It was basically a, a series of adventures that were all sort of built around the idea of books and libraries and, and this sort of stuff. And there were some, yeah, I think some really neat ideas that were in it. The sort of controversy that emerged were again over this sort of issue of identity and representativeness, uh, and it was clear, I think, that you know, the makers of D and were kind of responding to exactly what you're saying. So, what if you are, for instance, a, a disabled player? Um, you know, should you be able to have a wheelchair? You know, for instance, you know, and so they kind of bragged about, you know, particularly the author of one of the dungeons, bragged about producing the sort of wheelchair accessible dungeon, you know, if you will, um, that there were no Physical obstacles within the dungeon that would prevent a wheelchair-bound, you know, adventuring character from journeying, you know, throughout it. And of course, a lot of non-playable characters, the NPCs that were in the uh, the game, used non-binary they them pronouns. You know, so there was a lot of individuals that sort of represented and not partic- particularly non-binary, you know, individuals within the the adventure paths. Um, you know and, and kind of the criticism was was you know i, I, I on the other, on one hand I, I, I sort of see the good faith you know that I could see where for some players that could be a positive um, to see themselves represented you know in the product uh, and then and of course the criticism came that on the other hand it kind of felt a little bit like adventuring through a college dormitory And <laughs> I get both you know I, I you know the, I think these things are complicated and nuanced things I sort of get both sides of, of where people are you know are, are coming from you know, maybe the, the thought that I had sort of based on that is like, you know, I, I don't see anything wrong with, for instance, having a disabled, you know, a character in the game. There are, within Dungeons and Dragons, there are other ways perhaps of addressing it. That could be like a substantial challenge for that character to, to have to deal with. And there may be other ways, creative ways of dealing with that. And, and of course, eventually, as you raise up a level using magic and things like that, uh, that wouldn't necessarily require a wheelchair or the idea that suddenly... All these dungeons that are sort of designed to kill you are wheelchair accessible, however, you know, at the same time. I mean, that there is a sort of issue of immersion, right? And if you're sort of like losing the immersion that these fantasy brutal role playing settings somehow don't have any rocks.
1: Because not to be insensitive, but I feel like the orcs would pick up on the wheelchair thing and maybe like put stairs in (laughs) I don't want to give the orcs any ideas what we're talking about here is playing out in a lot of different subcultures since I can remember Star Trek fans have been discussing whether the Ferengi are anti-semitic short big noses sort of it kind of reminds us of Nazi stereotypes a little bit they're money lenders all that stuff Which I actually have, have more time for those complaints than others. It, it is a little weird. You know, on one end of the spectrum, you have, like, hardcore war gamers. I play a game called Squad Leader. It tends to be, like, a lot of middle-aged men. And then you get into the role-playing space, which is very diverse. And then in the middle, you have what is sometimes known as a Euro gamers. That's people who are into, like, train games or Settlers of Catan, as it was once known. It's now called Catan or Power Grid. If listeners who aren't gamers, these are the games that, when you're at your brother-in-law's dinner party, after dinner, he's trying to get you to play and teach you the instructions and you're rolling your eyes and talking about how you have to go home to pay the babysitter. But these are sort of like I would call medium complexity games, often with like a historical premise. And I'm I'm babbling about all this because I was at Gen Con, I think three years ago, playing a game. As as soon as I mention the game, you're going to know what I'm talking about. It's a game called Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of these Euro games, you know, you're building up sort of resources and production In it could be science fiction, you know, this terraforming Mars, which is a popular game. I love that game, or you know, Catan, it's a mythical land. In Puerto Rico, it's about the early Western colonization and economic exploitation of Puerto Rico. Right. And and there are abstract pieces within the game, which are sort of laborers, but they're essentially mm-hmm. slaves. If you know the history of the region, they're, they're, they're slaves. On one hand, the historical premise of the game is horrifying, essentially recreating in abstract form slave plantations. On the other hand, it's an incredibly popular game. Yeah. It it regularly tops all these lists of favorite games that appear on uh, Board Game Geek, BGG, which is the big website in, in gaming. And I have gone to these conventions. I'll be at a table, people, very diverse, pronoun pins, very progressive. You know, this is a couple years ago. They are talking about how much they hated Trump. Yeah fine, I don't talk politics when I'm I'm gaming, but then they'll break out Puerto Rico and suddenly they're slave owners. No one's allowed to talk about it because they love the game. And if they started to talk about it, you can either talk about it a lot and not play the game or not talk about it at all and enjoy the game. What what you can't do is talk about it a little bit. Mm. To what extent have maybe some of the people you've spoken to or studied are they willing to stop playing games they love because there's a premise in the game they they can't deal with?
0: That's a great question, and you know, I'm, I'm be honest, I'm not familiar with the Puerto Rico game, but I've certainly seen that argument in a variety of other spaces you know so certainly let's come up with video games like Civilization of course people talk about you know that sort of situation with that game and and uh, Sid Meier even had a game Colonization I always think like oh, I, I wonder if he would ever do like Colonization 2 you know today and what kind of reaction that would get but a, a recent example actually came up in one of d and um, main rivals Pathfinder, uh, where at least is my understanding, is largely in response to a single anonymous letter, probably backed up by the usual Twitter, you know, outrage. Uh, they decided to remove the topic of slavery by and large, entirely from the game. There's some confusion about, because even the developers are kind of gone back and forth. So, you know, I'm not speaking officially for them, but it it looks like largely to all completely removing the topic of slavery from the Pathfinder game. So basically Pathfinder is very much like Dungeons and Dragons. They have this sort of like fantasy world. And there are these like, you know, essentially evil empires that are built on the backs of of slaves, you know, and this sort of stuff. And slavery is presented as an evil you have the opportunity as players, of course, to fight against that evil and uh, try to undo, you know, slavery. But the argument, you know, at least as I understand it, was that for some players, and presumably, you know, this is sort of, you know, targeting sort of black players, is that for some players that the topic, is just too triggering uh, and that they're telling too many storylines sort of built around sort of evil slavers and this sort of stuff. Uh, So in response to this uh, criticism, um, and again, the trigger was really a single anonymous letter, they have decided to at best scale back, or at least according to one developer, entirely remove uh, slavery as a topic from the setting, largely without explanation. It's sort of like Almost the opposite of like telling American history and suddenly deleting all references to slavery from American history is gone without explanation.
1: I realize you're talking about a science fiction game. Yeah. But I'm, I'm more in the historical wargaming space. If you're not willing to examine how much slavery was going on in almost all periods of human history, you can't tell the military and economic story in a game format or in any format. But I guess in, in in science fiction, you could pretend that that kind of evil impulse doesn't exist.
0: Yeah, I mean, of course, like these fantasy realms are built around a certain type of history. So to sort of like suddenly erase all of that history, even from the sort of fantasy realm, Looks kind of odd to players. I mean, again, it's sort of that that removal of immersion, you know, uh, particularly if it occurs without some sort of explanation uh, for why it occurred. But but I think this is a challenge for a lot of the developers. Is what did they do? You know, when they get some sort of response, whether it's a single letter or if it is a Twitter mob or something of that sort, where people are claiming to be anxious or traumatized or triggered or whatever the keyword is, you know, by a particular topic, even if that topic is covered in a way that is not ostensibly racist or, or something like that. So what do the developers do? Should they essentially give in, you know, to this sort of expression of trauma or outrage or whatever it may be. And in doing so, are they actually helping anyone by doing that? So there is this sort of concept of safetyism that uh, has been talked about. You know, I know like Jonathan Haidt and uh, Greg Lukianoff have talked about it in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind. I think you had Jonathan on, you know, basically the argument is if you actually sort of like bubble wrap everything for people, that actually makes people's mental health worse. And that by sort of removing everything noxious from the environment and treating people's anxiety that way you make them it incentivizes more trauma more anxiety
1: An hour before this podcast started the CBC published that's the yeah. Canadian Broadcasting Corporation of National Media here. They published an article about how one of the great things about everybody working from home is that you don't have to risk getting microaggressions meeting people in the actual workplace. <laughs> I want to ask about the founder of Dungeons & Dragons, uh, whose name was uh, Gary Gygax, and he died in 2008. If, you're, if your name is Cadbury, you're probably going to be a butler. If your name is Gary Gygax, you're probably going to invent uh, a geeky game. <laughs> and what's interesting is, actually, you talk about it here in your article, is that when it comes to many fantasy worlds, there's a lot of scrutiny on, on the politics of the people who create them. People have gone to great lengths to figure out what Tolkien thought about racism and stuff like that. J.K. Rowling, a lot of scrutiny, not just about the gender stuff, about uh, the goblin bankers. Some people are saying, oh, they're like the Ferengi or whatnot. But the idea is that there's this canon and there's a creator of the canon and and let's examine the purity. Um, Do we know much about what gary gygax thought about a lot of this stuff i realize, you know he died in 2008 this is before maybe you know the current iteration of this kind of
0: discussion took place do we know anything about what he thought about this stuff i don't claim to be the biographer of gary gygax i I, I can't say definitively what he, he, he may have thought i mean i think you know from watching interviews with him i think his intent was to create a fun game you know i think he was trying to uh um you know create a war game-based thing that was more immersive than most war games had been at the at the time. And I think he was borrowing a lot uh, from Tolkien. You know, he was borrowing a lot from sort of European uh medieval history and 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 all of that. You know, I have never come across anything that would make me believe that he was out to present you know racial minorities in a derogatory or negative way you know he may not have been uh, a historian you know so back in the first first edition they did have the uh, the oriental adventures for instance you know that was sort of did they really oh yeah they did yeah yeah they were basically trying to sort of apply Dungeons and Dragons to sort of like Asian you know settings and you know other, other than the controversy over using the word oriental granted this was back in the 80s when maybe you know the discourse was a little bit different back then but I don't remember anything in the in the book, or and granted, these are probably nearly forty year old memories at this point. But I don't remember anything derogatory about Asian cultures. If, if anything, it was it seemed to be trying to sort of capitalize on you know the the popularity of you know everything from kung fu movies to sure. you know everything else that was coming out of Asia uh, at the time. So I think you know in, within the context of this thing being sort of like a game that was sort of geared towards teens, I think it was reasonably respectful. Uh, At least I don't remember coming across anything that was offensive. Uh, You know, maybe if I read it now, 40 years later, I'd be gasping at some, but I I just don't have that memory. I don't think he was woke, you know, by (laughs) today's standards uh, necessarily, but I think he was, you know, a 40 something typical guy left-leaning you know for the 70s and 80s the you know, the time period that he was most you know well known for uh creating tsr and the D D&D system the at the time the thing he was mostly dealing with and mostly speaking on was of course all the like the suicide and satanism and all that kind of stuff so i don't think uh, the the issue of of D&D being racist is really about five years old i mean there you, you can find criticism here and there even of tolkien that go further back of course but yeah in terms of the mainstreaming of the idea that this is something we should all be talking about that's really i, I don't think i can can find a whole lot of stuff going back past 2017, you know, maybe going to 2014, but not before that, that was a very niche view, the idea that we should be talking about like orcs as being racist and, and that kind of stuff. It's very much a, a product of the great Awakening. I mean, my guess would be if I were to speak with him, if I can channel him like a medium that if you were to say like, oh, you, you know, we're trying to present, you know, Asians or black people as these evil orcs, we'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? That was, that, you know, uh, I don't think there was any intent, you know, to do that. Christopher J. Ferguson is a
1: professor in the Department of Psychology at Stetson University in Florida. His new article is called, Are Orcs Racist? Dungeons and Dragons, Ethnocentrism, Anxiety, and the Depiction of Evil Monsters, which appears in the Journal of Current
0: Psychology. Thanks so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. Well, thanks for having me on today. It's been awesome. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette.